Hi, everybody. Good to have you joining us. I'm Greg Boyd, uh, teaching pastor here at Wilderness Church. And uh, it is hot outside. Whoa. I don't know. We've got a number of folks from Texas joining us uh, in these services. And I just want to tell you, for guys in Texas, I have no idea how you survive. I don't. Uh, I go, went out this morning and had to put on the water and change it once or twice. And I come in and I'm already just drenched in sweat. I'm a sweat hog. Uh, so if you see me sweating up here, it's because I'm a sweat hog. Uh, but we here we call it the anointing, so we'll just go with that. Hey, I want to give a shout-out. You, thank you to Ephraim Smith. Did a great job last week. I love that brother. Uh, he's, just, he's just a gem. Before that, we had Oshida. I uh, gave an incredible message. I just am so blessed to have the kind of teachers available to us that we have right here. Um, I will warn you, for those of you who are new, um, here's one of the kind of a staple of Woodland Hills. Uh, a couple times a year, I get geeked out. I just kind of... I'm a theologian, it's, and, and, and getting geeky is a hazard of the, of the trade. And, and, and once in a while, I have a message that is just packed with a lot of stuff. you got to think about it. And, and, and this is, if you haven't heard me speak on this topic, uh, this is going to be one of those messages. So I'm giving you a forewarning, get ready to think, especially towards the last half of this message, I suspect. Um, we've been talking about reconciliation the last six weeks. Maybe it's more than that. I, man, time has kind of stood still. But... Uh, and we're going to continue to talk on that topic. Uh, we're in a Kairos moment here that, that I think is just so important to pay attention to. Uh, the next couple of weeks, we'll be addressing some of the questions that you guys have sent in. And uh, in fact, we'll start that today. Uh, we'll have a panel talking through some of that stuff. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be so explicitly on the topic of racial reconciliation. What I'd like to do is zoom out and, and, and put it in the context of God's broader work of reconciliation. And my goal here primarily is this, that... I want us to capture the, there is a unique, very challenging, humble attitude that followers of Jesus are to assume as we go about God's reconciling work. Um, and and it's, it's, it's an it's a attitude that is challenging, it goes against our fallen nature, um, and it contrasts sharply with what we find in the surrounding culture. Uh, to get at this, I want to read a parable from the book of Matthew, uh, one of Jesus' parables, one of his stranger parables, actually. Um, it's on the wheat and the weeds. Uh, in a lot of translations, it has the wheat and the tares. Uh, tares are just another word for weeds. Um, and so I'll be talking about the, the, the wheat and the weeds. Here's the parable. It starts with verse 24, Matthew 13. Jesus put before them this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone. No, no, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven general topic. It can be compared to someone who sowed good seed in this field. So there's a good farmer and he sows good seed. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat, and then he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, do you not, did we not sow good seed in your field? I just want to say a word about this translation here. Uh, the words doulos, and it can be translated slave, or sometimes it's translated servant. Um, you just got to know that saying slave in that context doesn't have the same connotation as in the pre-abolition South. Uh, these were more like indentured servants. They could work their way out of slavery and become citizens. Um, and so it wasn't quite the same thing. It was, a tough, it was a tough position to be in, but it wasn't anything like we had in the South. So just kind of make that mental adjustment there. Um, and he answered... They ask, where do these weeds come from? And Jesus, and then the farmer says, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. 
Let them grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. All right, so the wheat here, the wheat here is uh, the, the good seed that is sowed by the good father, the good farmer. The good farmer always sows good seed. Um, but in the field of this good farmer, where you'd expect to have nothing but good seed, nothing but wheat, uh, we find that there's other kind of plants, things that are not in the, uh, that wasn't sown by the farmer. It was sown by the enemy. They're weeds, these worthless growing things that wrap around the stalk of the, the harvest, and they suck out the nutrients that's the, that, the, that the good crop needs. But for whatever reasons, and this parable is not given to us as a theodicy, as an explanation for evil, but for whatever reasons here, the farmer has to let the two grow together. Uh, and only at the end, at the harvest time, will they be separated. This an enemy has done. Now, before I get into the meat of this message here, I, there's two preliminary words I want to make about this, this thing, just to avoid misunderstanding. Number one is it's important to know that this parable is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Uh, Jesus here is describing a state of affairs. The good farmer sowing good seed, but then there's other things in his field that are not from the farmer. He's describing something. He's not prescribing any like, behavior towards us. He's certainly not suggesting that, I mean, because the farmer has to wait till the end to, to separate the weeds from the wheat, he's not suggesting that we are never supposed to address weeds, weeds in our life or weeds in society. In fact, Jesus' ministry is all about him confronting weeds in people's life and uprooting those things. So that's not the point of it. The parable is really not about us at all. It's about the farmer and about this field. And the point of it is that the good farmer sows only good seed. Uh, but there's other things going on than just the farmer. There are things in the field of the farmer that he did not plant that, that are harmful and threatening to the good harvest that he has. So that, that's, that, that's the first thing. It's, and he's saying it's going to stay that way more or less until the Lord returns, until this harvest time. The second thing I, I want to say is that uh, it has to do with the word enemy. An enemy has done this. And this is primarily for people who are relatively new to Woodland Hills Church. Uh, folks here have been here a while, uh, are more familiar with this. Uh, the enemy there refers to the one that the New Testament calls Satan, or uh, the devil, the destroyer, the accuser. And it would include also uh, the things in the New Testament we read about principalities and powers and dominions and authorities and rulers. And, and they refer to different levels of angelic beings. And in the apocalyptic context in which the New Testament is written, we know a lot about these categories of rulers and authorities and principalities and powers because that's talked about in the other literature. And in general, their view was that, that just as God entrusted us with some responsibility for the earth and the animal kingdom, and we're supposed to reflect God's character and loving for them, so also God entrusted these high-ranking principalities and powers with authority over fundamental aspects of creation and society over structural aspects of creation, and over systemic aspects of society. And it's not that, that these powers in this apocalyptic worldview, it's not that they, they control people, but they influence people. People are still morally responsible in making their choices. Uh, God doesn't coerce them, and the devil can't coerce them. But there's influence here. There's a polluting influence that they have uh, in the world, according to this, uh, the New Testament, this apocalyptic worldview. Now, I know that it's not fashionable to believe in these things today, or at least not among academics. Most people throughout history, up until very recently, and still for much of the world, um, they just knew that there was something sinister going on in the world. They all believed in spiritual powers, whatever, but in the modern West, in academic circles, it's not fashionable. Uh, it's what C.S. Lewis referred to as the, the, you know, the, the fad of the current times. They change all the time. It's not that there's any evidence against it. It's just that it's not fashionable to believe that. 
Now, I believe that, that these principalities and powers and Satan are real, ontologically real. Um, and I think I've got good reasons for that. I explained that a couple weeks ago. I don't want to get into that. But I just want to encourage you, if, if, if you're agnostic about this or you just think it's implausible, try to keep an open mind. And I want to encourage you to um, not associate, when I say devil or Satan or principles and powers, try not to get a picture in your mind of what that looks like. Because what will come up is some kind of medieval cartoon of Satan with the you know, red skin and spiked tail and pitchfork and all that kind of stuff. The thing is this, all depictions of the principalities and powers are mythological. They all are. Because they're trying to say, here's what Satan and the principalities and powers look like. But the truth is that, the sa that Satan and the principalities and powers don't look like anything. They're invisible. And so any conception of them is going to be mythic. Um, and I think a lot of people, they throw out this idea of Satan and the principalities and powers because they're largely thinking of those mythological depictions of them. Those mythological depictions, I believe, point to a reality, and the reality they point to is like, you could call it transcendent evil. Transcendent evil. So it if it helps you, when I'm uh, talking about Satan and the principalities and powers, just think transcendent evil. There's a force that is corrupting the world as we know it today, transcendent evil. So we live in this wheat and weed creation. Uh, in, the in, the, in the creator's good, in the creator's good field, there are things that are not, that are not of the creator. And by the way, I'm getting this uh, weed and wheat universe or weed and wheat cosmos concept uh, from this book by uh, uh, a person named Cregan, C-R-E-E-G-A-N. And the book is called Animal Suffering and the Problem of Evil, by put out by Oxford Press. It is really a good book to read. If you like that kind of thing, if you're into philosophy and theology and whatever, it's, it's a good book. So he refers to the wheat and tares world. I'll refer to the wheat and weeds world. The wheat is all the stuff that ultimately originates from God. Others participate in, in bringing it about, but it, it originates from God. The weeds being uh, things that are contrary to God's purpose. And it, it, you can tell the difference because the, the, the wheat always reflects the good character of the farmer, and the weeds don't. The weeds are always destructive. They're always sucking life out of things. They're always destroying things. But in our present world, it's not always easy to clearly distinguish between the two because they are all wrapped up together. Everything's kind of a mixed bag of wheat and weeds. So that, 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 that's the preliminary word. Now, I, to get to the meat of my message, I want to start by wishing you a happy 4th of July weekend. I hope you all are enjoying this wonderful season we're in. Uh, now, here's the thing. Some of you will be surprised to hear this, but I've been accused of being a 4th of July killjoy. I've been accused of being unpatriotic. I've been accused of not loving my country. Um, and, and I thought I, this is a good occasion, July 4th, 2020, this wonderful year that we have having where everyone is really happier than usual. I thought it's time to come straight, set the record straight. So here's the record straight. It's all true. I'm a communist. What can I say? I'm sorry. No. Here, the, here's the thing. It's true. that I, I shouldn't have said that. It's true. Why shouldn't I? I mean, come on. We can just, so here's the thing. Um, the, the, uh, um, what was I going to say? It's true that I don't pledge allegiance to the flag. That's true. Because uh, I don't think that we should be pledging our allegiance to anyone other than Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Uh, it's true that I don't think the 4th of July should be a, 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 a holiday that we celebrate in church. Fine in the broader culture, wonderful, but it's a war, for crying out loud. It's a war where Christians were fighting Christians, and, and whatever the outcome, however it benefits us, however much we might like that or not like it, uh, how can we celebrate that in the church? I don't think it should be a, a Christian holiday. And I'll tell you honestly, since I'm trying to be honest here, 
right now I'm not particularly happy with my country, and right now I'm not particularly proud of my country. But I will tell you, I'm always grateful for it. I, I, I appreciate the, the ideals of, our, of America, I think, are brilliant. Liberty and justice for all is, is, is brilliant. I think our Constitution is brilliant. I think the separation of church and state is brilliant. I, I, now, we've never come close to living up to those ideals, but the fact that we have those ideals and we're inching towards them is a positive thing. Many countries aren't near in, in that position. Uh, we're, we, we, we're, we're inching forward. We, we don't walk in a straight line. We walk more like a drunk coming out of the bar at 3 a.m. You know, we stagger. You know, the, the country staggers. We trip over ourselves. We stumble backwards sometimes quite a ways. But we get up and we keep on inching towards that. And I appreciate that. It took a long time coming, but I appreciate the fact that I live in a country where everyone has, at least in principle, a say, a vote in, in what goes down. And I know there are still forces that are trying to restrict that. There's that drunk again trying to make his way forward, but, but we're heading in the right direction. I appreciate that. I, I think that you know, there's a lot of historians that argue that because of these ideals, America has been uh, the single greatest force in raising the bar on human dignity and human freedom throughout the globe. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we've got a, some, would argue, some would argue it's not as true today as it has been in the past, but America has usually been very generous when it comes to global causes and, and, and the plight of, of, of other countries. So there's a lot there that I would call wheat, a lot of good stuff. But see, it's a mixed bag. I think it's a mixed bag because there's also a lot of weeds. And we've been talking about the weeds a lot lately, and that's why we felt we kind of needed to balance this out a little bit. But there are a lot of weeds, and we've just got to admit that. The weeds of, I mean, the country was founded on, on, on a premise of white superiority. That's indisputable. It was obvious. They didn't conceal that. They were outlawed about it. They called it manifest destiny. It's obvious, it's manifest, that whites are supposed to rule because they're superior. And, and this is what Paul would call a principality in power, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we established a principality in power, or invited in a principality in power in the founding of this country, and it's done nothing but grow weeds ever since. The principality in power of white supremacy, it's created an enormous amount of weeds that we're still coming against to this very day. So America's a mixed bag. And I would say the same thing about all countries. And that's not to say that all countries are, are, are exactly the same, that they have the same mixture of good and evil. I think some countries are certainly better than others when it comes to human rights and dignity and things like that. But all of them are to some degree a mixed bag, and it means that you're never going to find a country or a nation that's unambiguously good or unambiguously evil, though some have tried very hard to get to that latter thing. It's a mixed bag. It's a wheat and terror thing. It's all a part of the Father's field, and yet there are things in this field, and therefore things in America, that do not reflect the Father's great, wonderful character. But see, here's the thing. The reason why you can't find countries that are unambiguously good is because you can't find people that are unambiguously good, and people are what constitute countries. People are a mixed bag. Human beings are a mixed bag. Uh, we are wheat, and we have weeds. Um, here's the way the Bible talks about it. On the one hand, we are... Uh, we, we, we are made in the image of God. And that's a title of incredible dignity. If you understand it in the ancient Near Eastern context, uh, that's a title of royalty. You know, the author of Genesis 1 is saying that human beings are made to be kings and queens on this planet. We're God's viceroys. We're given responsibility for the earth and the animal kingdom. And so there's this wonderful, I mean, the Bible talks about us in terms that are more exalted than we would normally think. It's surprising how we're made just a little bit lower than the angels. It's incredible the dignity that the Bible ascribes to human beings. But at the same time, because of the fall, uh, the Bible describes us in terms that are 
worse than we would expect. I mean, apart from Christ, the Bible tells us that we are, there's none that are righteous. We're all, we all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, we are blind in our sin. We're slaves in our sin. And there's none that does righteousness, Paul says in, in, in Romans 2. Uh, we cannot save ourselves. We're, uh, on our own, we would not even have the impulse to try to seek out God. Paul says there's none that on their own seeks out after God. And so, so we, have, we're, 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 we have a wheat essence, but we've got a lot of weeds going on. A lot of things about us are not, are not ideal. And I think we all know that just by a little introspection. I mean, ask yourself, I, however you estimate yourself, however you evaluate yourself, um, however good you think you are, do you always try your hardest to do the best? Always? Have you 24-7 just uh, committed yourself to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself 24-7? You know, all of us know we're not as good as we could be. We all know that we're broken. We all know that we fall short. And uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this. He said that the line between good and evil, where's that quote here? The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart, and, though all human, and through all human hearts. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And it runs through every human heart. Uh, we have a tremendous capacity for good, and we have a tremendous capacity for evil. And... Um, uh, it's, and that's not to say that everybody looks like with nations. It's not to say that everybody, uh, that some aren't more morally uh, uh, evolved than others. It's not to say that we can't distinguish people who are, you know, aligned with good causes and people who are aligned with bad causes. But it is to say that we are all a mixed bag. There's a world of difference between Martin Luther King and an Adolf Hitler, obviously, right? And we can tell the difference between those two, at least I hope you can. But Martin Luther King would admit that he's a sinner in need of salvation, in need of Jesus Christ. Uh, and and in, in that sense, in terms of being estranged from God, he's on the same plane as Hitler. The line runs through everybody. So we're all a mixed bag. We're all a mixed bag. You see that when you look at our founding fathers. There's a lot of good that is there, a lot of good that is there, but there's also a lot of junk that is there. Two of the four folks that are enshrined in Mount Rushmore owned slaves. So it's a mixed bag. But see, in our, in our polarized society, um, people are getting siloed into their own little echo chambers. They're, they're getting the reality of their choice, and so their brains get hardened, their categories get hardened, and, and, and people get polarized. And in this kind of context, there's always a pull towards extremes. And so you have some folks who, uh, when they talk about America, you know, they see the weeds, and, and, and the way they talk, you think that there's no wheat there at all. Evil simply the, America's simply the evil empire. Then you t- t- listen to other folks, and, uh, and, and this is kind of more where our textbooks tend to be, and they kind of just say, yeah, there's been a few weeds, but it's little tiny things. You get the impression that America's almost 100% wheat with a few little weeds here. The truth is it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Um, and, and that's what Jesus' parable should set us up to expect. Everything's a mixed bag. So nations are a mixed bag because people are a mixed bag, and people are a mixed bag because, and this is where... I'm going to rattle a few cages maybe, or this may be a new thought, just keep an open mind. But we're a mixed bag because creation is a mixed bag. We live in a wheat and weed creation. It says this in Colossians 1, that God was, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. This passage has just been burning in me lately. I just can't, it's been seared into my consciousness. Um, See, the passage is telling us that God is at work throughout all the creation, in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm, to reconcile all things to himself and to reconcile everything to one another, to bring peace, to bring shalom, wholeness, harmony to the whole of creation. Which, that's the stream, that, that's what God's doing in the world today. He's always, at every moment, pushing in that direction. To bring harmony, wholeness. So the whole creation would reflect his peace and his harmony and his beauty. Uh, but that means that at the present time, the creation doesn't have the shalom of God. It's not harmonious. It's full of conflict. It's full of things that were planted not by God, but by an enemy. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that, the whole creation's been subjected. The whole creation's been subjected to futility and to decay, uh, and it's groaning like a woman in labor, waiting for the, or the redemption of the children of God, because the redemption of human beings and of the creation go hand in hand. Um, so there's something off with creation. It's in pain. It's, it has suffering at a fundamental structural level. Paul says that the whole creation was subject to decay. Well, that's called the second law of thermodynamics. It's one of the most foundational laws of physics that there are. It describes our present world. And yet here Paul says that's the result of this bondage that the creation is under. Uh, It wasn't supposed to be that way. That's why throughout the Bible you find uh, death is seen as an enemy, an alien intruder. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It's spoken of, now it's, it, it, given the laws of physics, given the second law of thermodynamics, death is the most natural thing in the world, but the Bible tells us that that's not natural, which tells us that the second law of thermodynamics isn't, the, isn't identical with the original laws that God put in place for this creation. That's why Jesus, his whole ministry was spent confronting people with infirmities and, and deformities and blindness and all sorts of things like that. These are all things that are products of the laws of physics as we now find them. And yet never once does Jesus... Never once does he say, well, this is just the natural order of things when he confronts a person who's deformed or has something not working. Never once does he say, well, this is the will of my father. Hey, this is wheat. You may not look like wheat, but it's actually wheat. This is a good thing that you're blind or deformed or what have you. He never does that. What he does, he says, this an enemy has done. This an enemy has done. And he roots it out. He uses the authority of God to root that thing out of the person's life. This an enemy has done. The Gospels always decide, and it's not that there's a demon behind every headache or every affliction or every whatever, but what it's saying is that if it was not for the fact that this creation is in bondage to something alien to God, against God, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have these kind of deformities and infirmities and diseases and all the rest of things. Now it raises the question, well, how did creation get so screwed up? How does an all-good, all-powerful God have a creation where you got COVID-19 in it, for crying out loud? Well, Jesus probably gives us the answer to that. This an enemy has done. An enemy has done this. Now, in traditional theology, um, at least since the 5th century on, Adam and Eve took the, the, the fall for this. Um, they, they blamed uh, the fall of Adam and Eve on the corruption of nature. Uh, that's been the standard explanation, at least from the 4th, 5th century on. Um, and, and you can really find that in, in the biblical text. But see, if you accept science, and I do, that explanation is no longer possible. Um, what we know is that there's been animal suffering, there's been predation, animals feeding on animals, or organisms on organisms, for at least 500 million years, soon after the Cambrian explosion. Now, I, I can't get into right now how you might fit Adam and Eve into the story. I don't have time for that. But what's interesting to me is that the early church, the early church fathers, 
didn't tend to go, didn't tend to blame it on Adam and Eve. The earliest fathers saw the human fall more as a microcosm of a bigger fall, a cosmic fall, a cosmic rebellion. Because the New Testament talks about that. And, and, and so they put the blame on the principalities and powers corrupting nature as we find it. Uh, a good representative of this is a, a, a theologian named Athenagoras, uh, early 2nd century uh, theologian. And here's what he says. He's explaining to non-Christians why the world's so screwed up. And he says, Satan, he refers to Satan as the spirit, who was originally entrusted with the control of matter and the forms of matter. So this is an agent that got entrusted with the fundamental structure of physical things. He's writing this in the second century. Unfortunately, he says, this prince of matter now exercises a control and management of the cosmos that's contrary to the good that is in God. There was a rebellion, and now this, this prince, Satan, uses his authority at cross-purposes with God. There's a transcendent evil that is interfering with the good field of the farmer. And so the all-suffering and violence in creation, according to Thenagoras, is the result of these, the corrupting influence of this ruling prince and the demons, his followers. That's how the early church understood all the stuff that's nasty in nature, and they're aware of that. How could an all-good, all-powerful God create a, 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 a nature where you've got mosquitoes in it for crying out loud, those blood-sucking varmints? But you've got parasites that crawl into little kids' eyes and eat it from the inside out, and you've got, you've got all sorts of organisms out there that can eat skin or that amoeba that gets into your ear and then eats your people's brains and all sorts of sinister, nasty stuff. That doesn't look like wheat. That doesn't reflect the character of the all-loving, all-good God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. No, this an enemy has done. The early church saw that. C.S. Lewis, I think, captured it just perfectly, the, the whole kind of thinking of the New Testament when he said this. At every moment in this creation, in this cosmos, every square inch is claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by God. Every square inch. What he's getting at is that the, the wheat and tear polarity, it's in the very fabric of things. Now, see, the, the way the West has tended to interpret the Bible, it's very human-centered, uh, very anthropocentric. And so we've tended to see the whole thing about salvation and the fall and the problem of sin and all that as simply a human God thing, as though the creation was just fine as it is. But in the Bible and in the early church, they understood that the fall is a cosmic thing. It's a whole creation thing. So redemption is a cosmic thing. It's a whole creation thing. And God's interesting in, interested in salvaging the whole thing. Paul says that God is at work by means of the blood of the cross to reconcile everything in the physical realm and everything in the spiritual realm to God because all of it is contaminated with this transcendent evil that's polluting it. And in the end, all that is inconsistent with the creation comes from sources other than God, this transcendent evil. So the creation is a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag, and every aspect of the creation is a mixed bag, a wheat and tares thing. So for here, here's one little example, uh, illustration. Uh, my, my, my wife, we, we had a dog named Max, died three years ago. And my wife loved that dog. She just loved Max. In fact, I, I tell you, I've never witnessed a dog-human connection like I had between those two. It was a little weird. I mean, Max would sit and stare at her with adoration for hours, just like worshipped her. Uh, and it, yeah, it's just... So my wife really loves, and why not? Because we have an adorable dog. Do we have a picture of my dog? He's adorable. He's so cute. Who cannot love this dog? Oh, what a creation of God. So great. Well, my wife also loved this little, this nest of uh, little birds that uh, was, we had in our, a tree in our backyard. 
uh, started with a nest of a couple eggs, and she found, you know, she, she would go hit her little selfie stick and take pictures of it every day and report on the progress, and she was so excited about it. And she started to bond with these little, little things, and then they hatch, and they're so cute, and she's always up there messing with them, and she goes up with a selfie, and they're like, ah, feed me, feed me, like, like that kind of thing. Well, one day I hear Max barking loudly out back, and I go, what's, what's up? And I get, run back there, and I get back there just in time to see my cute, adorable, wonderful little dog chomp on the head of that little, a little bird had fallen out of the nest and fallen on the ground, helpless, vulnerable, and Max bites into it and kills it. And Shelly was, boy, Max was in the doghouse after that. <laughs> I just thought of that just now. Uh, my wife was so mad at Max. <laughs> like, I, she didn't talk to Max for two days. And that's a lot because she was always talking to Max. I mean, that was just, she was always talking to Max. But she was mad at Max. But poor Max. He's just doing what he was bred to do. I mean, humans bred these dogs to go after small rodents, and so Max was just operating out of his instinct. So that's natural for him, but see, I don't think, I don't think that reflects the wheat of, of the good farmer. I don't think it, the, a god who's antithetical to violence is going to just say, yeah, I think I'll create a little dog that's so cute and eats little birds. Um, I think my dog, and this is going to hit some people weird, but I think my dog needs redemption. Now, I love my dog, warts and all. You know, that's what it is in a fallen world. To love people is to love them with their weeds. And to love dogs is to love dogs with their weeds. But, but see, in the end, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. Someday, that violent streak throughout nature is going to be eradicated. In the harvest, the weeds are going to be separated from the wheat. And, and I, don't, I, I think I'll see Max again, and I don't think he's going to be chewing on little birds. I think he's going to be a different Max. Now, if you ask me a question like, well... What's that going to look like? What would a lion look like if it wasn't carnivorous? Lion laying down with the lamb and cobra praying, playing with the, the boy. How, how, how is that going to, what does that look like? And my answer is, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue, but I don't have a clue what Jesus' resurrected body looked like either. I mean, he could eat fish and then pass through walls 10 minutes later. You'd think he'd at least leave the fish behind on the wall, splatter. But half-digested fish. Uh, so who can figure that stuff out? All I know is that the creation's a mixed bag and it goes in the very fabric of things, and it won't be able to stay that way until the end. So having said that, laying the groundwork here, I mean, it's, we're all broken. Uh, nations are broken because people are broken, and people are broken because the creation is broken. And God is now at work. The stream that God's in is he's aiming towards reconciliation, harmony, wholeness, and all things by means of the blood of Christ. So let me wrap this up with three quick little uh, summary points. One, the first is that... What Colossians 1 and many other passages tell us is that, that the gospel is reconciliation. It's all about reconciliation. The good news is that, hey, everything's broken now, but it will get fixed. The, God's bringing the wholeness and harmony into all creation. It involves the whole creation, but the gospel is reconciliation. Um, this is what God does. It sums up the whole thing that God's, God's into these days. And racial reconciliation is simply a subset of the broader reconciliation that God's doing at a cosmic level. And I point that out to say this. Uh, to be uh, the people of God, to be uh, the follower of Jesus Christ, is to be a reconciler, therefore. We're, we're invited to participate with God in what God's doing in this universe, and what he's doing is Colossians 1, 19 and 20, bringing reconciliation to all things. That's our true north. That's our compass. That, that, that's the direction everything is headed, and our job as the church is to participate with God in doing that. So here's the thing. There's a lot of white churches I know right now who are wondering, should we be involved in reconciliation stuff? You know, it's kind of controversial. You might lose some people. Uh, I'll tell you this, uh, that uh, <laughs> you want to see white superiority assert itself. Go to a, a white church where they have never talked about racial issues um, because there's a long tradition of the white church ignoring these kind of things. 
and, 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 and you go to one of those churches and start trying to do that, boom! I know three people right now, three pastors who are out of work because they weighed in on this and their boards did not like it. And the other boards would say, We're not, there's nothing racist about us, but it was completely, you're ruffling feathers, you're causing problems, you're blah, 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 blah. Well, here's, they're considering it as an option, as though should we or shouldn't we? And I'm here to say, it ain't an option! This isn't an optional. This isn't a, a superfluous thing. Jesus died for this, as I pointed out a couple weeks ago. Ephesians 2. He died to create one new humanity and tear down all the walls that divide us. That's why he died. That's part of what we're there for, what we're supposed to be doing. And to not preach racial reconciliation, though Jesus died for this, is on the same level as not preaching the forgiveness of sins because Jesus died for that too. It's as heretical as could be. And what makes this even more important is that, as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, it was the failure of the church to preach the atonement, that the other side of the atonement, the, 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 the atonement that brings about this one new humanity and tears down the walls. The failure of the church to preach that, the white church, to preach that and to practice that, ultimately that is why we have all the weeds we have around race in this country. If a fraction of Christians were actually preaching this and believing this and walking in this, slavery never could have got off the ground. No, if, if you're in the business of reconciliation, you don't enslave people. And then when they finally get set free, you don't start working in genius ways of, of taking back everything they just got because of uh, the, the Civil War and Emancipation of Proclamation. The gospel is reconciliation, and it's non-negotiable. Number two, we've got to get, come clean with the fact that we are all broken. We're all broken. This is what the Bible means when it talks about us being in Adam. In Adam, we are broken. Uh, we're all broken in different ways. We come into this world broken. Uh, some are broken physically. Things that are supposed to work don't work. Some are broken cognitively. Uh, some, all of us are, are, are broken spiritually. Uh, in part because uh, we, we inherit a whole lot of stuff from our whole biological past, the warfare leading up to, to where we're at. Um, uh, we're born with stuff that is not naturally consistent with the will of God. Uh, godliness does not come natural for very many of us. Uh, there's things you got to curb back on that. We're, we're, we're born spiritually broken. And see, it's important for us to accept that, to, 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 to embrace that, because we can't step into the stream of what God's doing in this creation unless we're willing to, unless we're willing to embrace that brokenness. What it means is that the church's mission is not to be the unambiguously redeemed people uh, who are now going to minister to the un unambiguously unredeemed people. It's not like that. It doesn't divide that way. The church's mission is to be a people who are broken and in the process of being uh, healed, who are going to be ministering to other folks who are broken and hopefully in the process of being healed, or we want to help them be in the process of being healed. And the only difference between us is that we know where true north is. We know what God's up to in this world. We know what he's up to in my life, and I know what he's up to in your life, and so we want to participate in that. But we don't enter this as, we don't step into the stream of what God's doing as the righteous people versus the unrighteous people. We step in as the broken people who are going to minister to other broken people, and we just have to know where true north is. This is so, so important, I think, because in the world, the way you usually go about uh, aligning sides is it, it's, not on, 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 it's not predicated on brokenness, it's predicated on who's more righteous. Who's more righteous? Who's smarter? Who's got the better ideas? Who's, you know, it, it's all predicated on that, and that's why there's all this incredible conflict. If we start with our brokenness, see, we have all this in common. One of the best ways to get people to lay down their defenses is to share brokenness, because they can resonate with that, and there's immediately a bridge, an empathy that is there. 
Bottom line, folks, it means that in the kingdom, and this is our unique attitude, this is our unique stance we have to have, there is a humility that should characterize all that we do, a humility. We know that we are broken and we can't stand in judgment of others. We can still discern right from wrong. We can still discern good causes from bad causes uh, if our heart's in the right place. But we have to confess that when we enter this thing, we are sinners. In fact, Jesus says, and Paul says, that we should consider ourselves the worst of sinners. Um, not that we're objectively the most evil people on the planet, but it's an attitude of humility that we're, we're, we're encouraged to, to assume. So it means that when, well, as pa- we, we want to be passionately for justice, but we always have to do that knowing that we're not superior to the ones that, we're, that, 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 that are on the side of injustice. Oh, we want to stand up against racism, but without hating the racist. We have to realize that we all stand by God's grace. It's a different kind of a stance. It creates a kind of a dance. It's challenging, but it's important. The third, final thing is this. Redemption is by the blood of the cross. God is working to bring shalom to everything by means of the blood of the cross. It means that the primary way that we step into this stream is, is by imitating the blood of the cross. That, that's just a first century way of saying self-sacrificial love. The blood of the cross is that other-oriented, humble, self-sacrificial love, willingness to serve. We, man, we, we participate in the stream of God by ourselves doing that. I've always said that the kingdom begins in your life with your first drop of blood. And, 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 and so it's, it's when it costs us something personally. So what it means is that uh, the primary way that we are reconcilers is not first and foremost by uh, what we say we believe or what we scream we believe or by the sign that we carry that says what we believe or by how we vote every two to four years showing what we believe, as important as all that is. But the primary way that we're to participate is by our own willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others. And, 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 and so it, it's about relationship building. It's about it, everything in the kingdom operates through relationships. Uh, we'll hear more about that next week. Among other things, it means this. And here I want to speak to our, my white brothers and sisters. If you're really, really serious about being involved in this work of reconciliation, uh, then... It, it, it's great that you're willing to say what you believe on things and to show it with a sign if it's appropriate and, to, and all the rest. That's fine, how you vote. But, but it means you're going to have to, if you're living in a homogenous white bubble, you're going to have to get out more. Because you can't, you can't build relationships with people that are different from you if you're quarantined with the people that are exactly like you. You need to diversify. So, uh, folks, um, oh, and one final thing, one final thing. And uh, I promise this is my last thing because I'm running over. One advantage of being in the season is we're not, we're not quite as anal as we used to be about time, so that's a plus. But I don't want to take advantage of that. So, so knowing that, we, that, that it's by means of the blood of the cross that the world will be uh, reconciled, it changes our end game. Uh, in the world, the most they can do is have laws that curb behavior. Uh, and, and, and so uh, when it comes to like the George Floyd murder, the end game is to see justice done by having the prisoner, uh, by having the police officers pay whatever price society says they should pay for this crime. And that's the end. Uh, Derek Chauvin is in prison. End of story. That's a victory. And that is a victory, and I think that, 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 that honors George Floyd's life. But from a kingdom perspective, that's not the, that's not the final end. The final end, uh, God's aiming at reconciling all things. And Derek Chauvin is part of the all things. And while there's a lot of weeds in, wheat in this young man, there's a kernel, a, a lot of weeds in that, that young man and his thinking and whatever, there's an there's a essence of wheat there. He's a child of God in the image of God. And in the end, the end game for us involves 
loving our enemies, forgiving our enemies, uh, doing good to our enemies, praying for our enemies, and hoping that they come into the stream and get freed from their own oppression. Martin Luther King saw this so well. That, that to stand for reconciliation and freedom means you stand not just for your own reconciliation and freedom, but you want to see your oppressor freed as well. That's the kingdom. Now there's a long history, a sad history of Christian pastors especially, telling black folks and brown folks, hey, you need, you need to forgive and forget and move on. And that was nothing but a subterfuge for saying, we don't want to deal with your problems. A long history of that. And that fed the principalities and power, the transcendent evil. Um, and I need to be aware of that history as, 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 as I weigh in on this. Uh, because if I, it means that if the first thing I were to say after the George Floyd murder, the first thing I as a white person were to say was, hey, black folks, I know that you took a hit on this one, but you know, if you're Christian, you got to forgive and got, you know, just kind of move on and, and, and love him. If that's the first word of my mouth, it plays into this whole pattern of sweeping everything under the rug. You see, that's why history, knowing history is so important on this. Um, it's easy for me to say I love the racist because I've never once in my life been hurt by a racist. Never once. Uh, but if you've had four centuries of this, forgiving and loving your enemy is really, really costly. Um, and, and, and when you're coming out of a place of woundedness, that, that can take time. And you've got to work through some anger. And there's a process there. And the process isn't necessarily pretty. But we've got to make space for that process and allow that process um, to, un- to unfold on and so on. But still, having said that, the end game is always the end game. The true north is our true north. And that is the cross. And that means that our heart, we want to move in the direction of having a heart where we genuinely hope to, to see Derek Shelvin freed from his bondage and brought into the kingdom of light and, 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 and displaying the radiance of a child of God. I hope to see that someday, and I pray for that. I encourage all of us to. Uh, it's a completely different endgame, a completely different strategy, completely different attitude that we're to bring to these issues than what we find typical in this world. Wheaton tears world, Wheaton tears nation, Wheaton... Wheaton weeds people, Wheaton weeds creation. But God's redeeming the whole thing. And at this point, I like to call up my, uh, I have a steamed panel that we're going to talk about some things. And so I'll turn it over to the lovely. Hey, it was really cool how you jumped up. She thought the song was over, or it was ending. So she gets up there and realizes, oh, they got another, you know, five minutes to play. So she just joins dancing in the background. She just flows with it. Take it away, Shauna. (laughs) Thank you, Greg, for pointing that out for those who maybe missed it. (laughs) That's great. Uh, We have, like Greg said, been talking in this series about um, these issues for several weeks. And uh, as is always the case, you guys who are watching and tuning in and engaging in the sermons in a variety of ways have been sending in questions. And and there have been many that have been sent in repeatedly. And so we're going to take today and the next few couple of weeks to to dive into some of those questions. So thank you for your engagement. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for putting yourself out there by asking these questions. And uh, we've got Kevin here with us today. And we're excited about that. And we have Cedric back with us again today. Very excited. And then the sweaty Greg. The sweaty Gregory Boyd on the very end. Thank you guys for being here. We really do appreciate it. Um, There have been 
a lot of conversations happening, which are good. And people have had many questions and, and people are getting poked in certain ways. People are, are feeling like they can breathe because this is being talked about. And so it's been a mixed bag of responses, just as Greg was preaching. And one of the things that um, we keep hearing back is the fact that as all of the protests are happening and people are speaking out and there's been a lot of challenges to change certain laws, the question is, and I'm gonna address this to you, Kevin, the question is, is why are we focusing on laws instead of focusing on people's hearts? And then if we're truly focusing on people's hearts instead of laws, then why aren't we taking this opportunity to get more people, quote unquote, saved, turn, their hearts turned towards salvation? Yeah. Great, great question. Um, yeah, well, first thing I want to say about that is that the concept of salvation in Scripture is we've shrunk it down to being an inner sort of personal, spiritual, or soul matter. And that's definitely part of what salvation means in Scripture, but the concept of being saved or salvation in the Bible is much bigger. It's holistic. It involves that inner personal soul heart dimension, but also the external uh, behaviors and social structures as well. Uh, the paradigmatic story of salvation in the Bible, we need to remember this, is the exodus from Egypt, where God delivers his people from slavery uh, underneath an oppressive uh, empire. And so that's a, the paradigmatic paradigm story of being saved. And, and certainly then they're freed so that then they can learn the Torah and live out new ways from the heart, from the inside out but they also need to be delivered physically from this bondage. So salvation is, is inner and outer. Jesus, when he preached his kingdom, he definitely addressed both. It's a both-and issue. It's, it's frustrating sometimes when I see this battle where uh, the inner dimension of the kingdom is being pitted against the external dimension, the social gospel against the gospel of renewal and, and such. But Jesus addresses both levels. So on the one hand, um, we see in... Uh, Matthew uh, 15, where Jesus is talking about looking inside our hearts, and, he, and, and, and from the heart come all these evil dimensions, all these evil acts, etc. And he then uses the metaphor of a cup. We need to clean the inside of the cup in order for good things to flow from that. But then in uh, Matthew uh, 21, Jesus uh, also enters the temple, and he cleanses the temple. So he talks about cleaning the inside of a cup, our hearts, then he uh, walks into the temple and he does this temple cleansing act. And the temple wasn't just a religious structure. In the, the Jewish system of Jesus' time, the temple was the combination of their political, the religious, and the economic system all rolled into one. It was their banking system. Their, it, they created laws there for guiding people's behavior. And it was the place of worship. Well, Jesus goes into this social structure and does this cleansing. And so what we see Jesus doing is addressing both the heart as well as the systems, and that's what the kingdom is about. And I feel like we need to hold those two things together. I love, Greg, how you really emphasize both of those things in your message today, the need for us to look at both levels. It's not an either-or thing. Salvation isn't an either-or thing. Yeah. So. And so do you guys think we <clears throat> need to solely, I know you're saying no, but then where does trying to influence change in the laws come into play with with this whole, let's call this a pandemic that we're mm. facing right now with racial tension, systemic yeah. racism, and all of that. Do we just focus on the hearts, or is there a place to try to have an influence in the way things are run on a, on a larger scale? You know, I, I, I think, it, look at Paul in Acts 16, uh, where he was thrown into prison unjustly. 
Um, and he called on the magistrate uh, and, and said, hey, uh, this is wrong. And in fact, he made the magistrate come. He wouldn't leave the prison until the magistrate escorted him out, I think to put on display, to hold the, the magistrate to account of their, their own laws and maybe other, other motives as well. And so you have precedent for it in, in, in Scripture. And the thing is this, like, if, if, if um, you know, I, this could get a little political, but, but if, your, if your mother is suffering under an unjust law, uh, going to be unjustly deported or whatever, um, yeah, I, I'd be interested in changing the hearts of the people who make the lawmakers, but right now I, wanna, I want her to be yes. able to stay with her kids, her five kids. And, I wanna, and when you love somebody, I mean, it's just natural to say, what can I do to rectify the situation? And if there's an unjust law that's abusing this person and you've got a voice, well, like Paul, how can you not use it? So yeah. I, I see it as uh, both and. Yeah. The other thing is that laws, while they can't change hearts, they, right. they can't. Sometimes right. they'll even aggravate hearts more. But uh, over time, they set a new norm. And that's what happened with the civil rights. You set a new norm. Uh, and so kids don't grow up seeing segregation. They grow up, now it's gone because it was outlawed. Mm -hmm. And so that raises the bar on its own. So yeah, if, and, and socially, that's all you have to work with is laws. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think it's a both and. The key here, I think, is... is to go full circle with the humility thing is yeah. we, in, in doing that in, in, in saying I think this is an unjust law and I want to help this person by rectifying it I have to do that with humility knowing that I am I'm just as prone as anybody else to get sucked into the polarities and of the politics and the culture right. and there's a whole history of Christians thinking that we're superior and we can figure out how to run countries and all right. that stuff and it's been disastrous but I'm not trying to claim I know anything about how to run a country, I don't uh, what immigration laws, I don't know I'm not going to try to run the world but I know this person is hurting, and that law is one hurting them, yeah. and I have a voice that I can use, and so let's use it all the while staying humble. Yeah, yeah like just add one more thing. Martin Luther King said, just kind of to jump off of what you said, Greg, that laws can't change hearts, but laws can restrain the hard-hearted, and I feel like that's an important thing to, that's, yep. to mm -hmm. intervene in a way that reduces harm to people. So, yeah. And that's our voice. Perfect. We can use our voice and our vote for that. Yeah. Well, circling back to that humility piece again, I really appreciate, Greg, a couple of things that you've done throughout this series. Um, I love that you didn't start right out from the gate like you said today with, okay, it's time to forgive because honestly, that would be really hard. <laughs> um, not that that's not what's needed, but that would just be a, a hard thing to, to hear in that, in that fresh, raw moment. Um, it would probably be wounding precisely because it plays into the pattern yes. of what's been going on for centuries Absolutely. and thereby feeds the principality and powers. And that's where that historical awareness is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I really was struck by, um, I think it was in that very first week, with passion and, and with just this raw emotion, you talked about roaring um, on mm -hmm. behalf of people of color and yeah. the black community and um, black and brown people and systemic racism and white privilege and all of that. Um, you talked about roaring and so, but we're also supposed to be humble in that. And so um, I have a few thoughts because that, I've had to process what that would look like um, as a person of color, but also as a woman. I mean, if, if you out there are any kind of marginalized group that has ever been marginalized, you know what it's like to have to wrestle with, how do I react humbly? How do I um, hate what is happening and, and have righteous anger mm -hmm. about that, but not hate the person? Right. Um, that's been such a process. And I think where I am, and I'm still in process because ask me on any given day and I could be not as close as I need to be. But I think where I am is, is uh, knowing, again, who I am in Christ, 
um, that he didn't make a mistake when he created me or any of us, and um, recognizing who you are in Christ and you and recognizing that we are all image bearers in Christ and not being afraid to take my seat at the table because at the banquet table there is room for all and we have a place there. And if someone is telling you, nope, you don't have a place, um, it, is, it is not the humble thing or even the loving thing to do to shrink back and say, oh, you're right, oh, you're right, uh, continue to dominate, no. Um, it is our place to say, no, we do have a place at the table. That's not always easy because sometimes people's power and influence is greater, but we have to see ourselves as having that rightful place, as Amen. being image bearers and having a say-so and, and standing up for ourselves. And you can do that in humility. It means that I recognize that um, we are on the same footing. Like we yep. are looking eye yes. to eye, yes. right? I'm yes. not looking up to you and you're not looking down to me and nor am I looking down to others. Right. We are seeking to encourage and empower one another so good, and liberate man. one another. Yeah, right. Do you guys have any oh, other so helpful thoughts about <laughs> that? Because like I said, it's not always easy no, to so. get to that place, mm. but um, it's what's helped me some throughout this process. I, I would agree. I think that it has been very interesting during this time to hear other people of color talk about this mm -hmm. and navigate what happened with the murder of George Floyd and a lot of other things since then that has happened. Um, I think one of the hardest things is, you kind of hit on it, Shauna, is to know that at this time as a kingdom bearer, a person of God, a child of God, that I need to do what Greg said, which is to forgive. Yeah. And in doing that emotionally, to be honest with myself, to say, I'm not there yet. Yep. Mm. And b based on the history that I need to get there, but based on what has happened, I'm not there yet and I am working to get there. Mm -hmm. um, that was hard for me in the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. I think if I would have heard that, um, I, I don't know if I would have been able to do it yeah. at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that through time that I have been able to kind of walk through, navigate, and I think that people of color, specifically black people, need to hear that. Mm -hmm. Because it is hard to have the pressure at times to say that, knowing that the word of God says that we need to forgive our enemies, um, but also like everything else, it's a process. Mm -hmm. And within that process, we need to make sure that if you don't go through the process, you end up going, getting to the other side and really not dealing mm -hmm. with what needs to be dealt with. So I would say to my fellow uh, black and brown people that, um, you don't necessarily need to be there as of yet. Um, I do think that you need to get there. Yeah. But I am saying that go through the process. There is a process. God in his loving wisdom and just care allows us to go through a process, right? Mm -hmm. When he is even wooing us back to himself um, through salvation, it is a process. So for us to now all of a sudden say that there doesn't need to be a process in this because I'm hurt, I don't think that that's necessarily fair right. or helpful um, to a person that needs to go through that process right. to get to the end of true, actual forgiveness yeah. where I could say, hey, Derek Chauvin or whoever, um, I forgive you. I dislike and don't appreciate what you did, and I actually think that you need to serve the maximum amount of time in jail, yep. right. but that does not change right. my, Absolutely. my love and forgiveness right. towards you. Right, That's nor perfect. does it make it okay, yeah. right? right? Like right. Just because we are wanting to be set free from those bondages that other people maybe have tried to place upon us, um, it doesn't mean that by going through that process of forgiveness, we're saying, you know what, no biggie, it's, right, it's right. good. It, no. 
racism is a sin. Mm -hmm. Being unreconciled with one another is a sin. Like lording over others is a sin. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not saying that it is by going through that forgiveness process. That's so important, I think, especially in our polarized time where people are being pulled to the extremes and Mm -hmm. getting siloed in there and where everything's got to be all or nothing. So to even say, you know, that uh, we need to love Derek Chauvin, uh, some people will hear that, oh, so you're saying, especially in light of the history, oh, I see, so now we're just supposed to kiss and make up. Right? Right. You're not supposed to address any of this stuff. Right. And, uh, um, yeah, it's not saying, that, to affirm that there's any wheat in, 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 in Derek Chauvin is not to deny the weeds. Right. And to yeah. assert the weeds is not to deny that there's that's wheat. Right. And that's the mixed bag thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very good. We need to stay humble <laughs> and yeah. engaged as we're yeah. going through that process. Yeah, yeah. It's really difficult. Okay, and so throughout this series, throughout this process that we've been in as a church discussing this, um, we have been saying very out loud that, that Cedric, your life matters, my life matters, that people of color, brown and black people, their lives matter. And so that's become a very polarized statement even, saying black lives matter. And so we have had folks who have written in asking, why are we focusing on that? Why are we focusing on race? Because isn't that further adding to the polarization? And if we're gonna do that, why don't we also say, all lives matter? Why don't we also say blue lives matter? Because when we're focusing on the race piece, um, there are some who feel that, like I said, we're adding to the polarization, and then we're even maybe uh, putting the police force in danger, like mm. causing people to have bad attitudes towards the police as a whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. when there's just a few bad apples and not the whole system that is corrupt. Yeah. Th- that's a, a, a really good question. Um, of course, all lives matter. Of course, every life has unsurpassable worth. That's Absolutely. the given. Uh, but it's precisely because we believe all lives matter that we insist that black lives matter because it's the black lives and black and brown lives that have been called into question. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw this video. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. This uh, guy who's, who's he, he's crying because his uncle got murdered, viciously murdered. And he's got a friend next to him, and the friend says, you know, he just starts going, by, my uncle was murdered, he's mourning this. And, and, and the guy goes, well, I've got an uncle too, and, and he's important. Yeah, but mine was murdered. Yeah, yeah but don't you think my, my, my uncle's as important as your uncle? Yeah, but this is the one that's in trouble, okay? Yeah. So <laughs> this is the one that's in trouble, and that's why the, that's we're right. ass, uh, uh, asserting this. Um, now the, the thing is, is here's why it's, I, the history piece is so important. Uh, to talk about you know, blue lives matter, of course, sure. first of all, no one's blue, but the <laughs> blue uniforms matter. Right. But um, you need to understand that, that uh, zoom out and, and understand that there's been a, this whole history mm-hmm. of, of going back to the Reconstruction period of police using their authority to keep blacks in play, place mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and abusing black folks, and it hasn't been just. Mm-hmm. In fact, Prior to the uh, end of the Reconstruction period, I've heard this, that, that towns had sheriffs and deputies, three or four, but the idea of a police force was created to keep black rebellion down. So they, 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 that's its origin. You want to re- read an interesting history, read up on the Texas Rangers. It was started as a branch of the KKK. I mean, it was just, now I'm not saying they are today, right. but, but uh, Texas Rangers, I bet their name's going to be coming down at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but so there's been a systemic racism there, and and um, that's what's being addressed now, and it needs to be addressed now. Mm. Yeah, it, it causes upheaval. It does, 
but it's, all, it's always been causing upheaval. <laughs> so we're not creating the problem. We're just acknowledging it, and now is the time to address it. But it, here again, it's always important to realize that we live in a, mix, a wheat and weed universe mm-hmm. uh, and, and not just, you know, paint all officers as evil or paint them all as good. No, they're all a mixture, and some people act out in, 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 in wrong ways. But see, calling it a few bad apples doesn't get at the system. It, right. If this just started last week, I'd say, oh, we got a couple, you know, bad apples. But what is it about the system that keeps on having bad apples? Yeah. <laughs> well, why can't you weed out folks like Derek Chauvin, who had 18 uh, previous, you know, complaints, two of them convictions, and it was obviously, you know, in bondage to a racist mindset, um, how, did he, how did he get by and keep on getting promoted? It's like yeah. something's off, and that's why yeah. people are, I know it makes a lot of people afraid, but they're saying we've got to relook at the way we do policing. You know, do we need to have policing on every call? Uh, and some are saying we need to diversify, like Camden in, in New Jersey. Uh, they, did, they, they, they had the worst crime rate going in, in, the, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but then they revamped the police force by putting in some health professionals and things like that. So when you get a call for a person who's acting crazy, send somebody who's good at dealing with crazy people rather than a criminal. Anyways, uh, that's how I respond to that. You have to have the, the long view to understand what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Kevin, do you have any thoughts about bad apples <laughs> versus the system? Yeah, I was just thinking about what you said, Greg. So systems in general can be oppressive and harmful for any person or any group of people, but certain systems can be more harmful and more oppressive to certain groups. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why this whole Black Lives Matter thing is because that's what's happening in our particular system. So there are, all of us maybe have different ways where we are suffering under the system, but none of, none of us as white people are suffering in the unique way that black and brown people are suffering in this particular system. And so that's why we need to say that Black Lives yep. Do Matter. And in terms of bad apples, of course, yeah, there's, you know, the, uh, my brother-in-law is a St. Paul policeman, and mm-hmm. so he's a good guy. If you knew him, you'd really like him. Awesome guy. Um, and so there are good policemen, Absolutely. for sure. There, there's good politicians. There's, but the issue is that the system, uh, uh, even the sort of corporate mind, the, the sort of one-mindedness that kind of comes out in systems, mm-hmm. where people will do things as part of a group that they would never do as individuals. Absolutely. There's a lot of sociological research that has shown that. There's this momentum uh, as a group that would never happen as an individual. Yep. And so we see that even with the Derek Chauvin thing, where we see he looked like he was very intentionally you know, harming, trying to harm George Floyd. The others were sort of swept along with him, mm-hmm. and they, they probably wouldn't have done, they would have done more to stop it or wouldn't have done as much to go along with it as individuals in any other. Sure. But as policemen, as part of a team as part of a group as part of a system you're swept along Mm -hmm. and so there are bad apples there are good people there are bad cops there are good cops but systems tend to create this collective mentality and sweep people along in their momentum and that's a reality we need to to factor in as well those are some really good points Um, as we have been discussing this we've encouraged people to do your research like start learning about this stuff if you don't know and and what happens when you go out there just blindly trying to (laughs) find some stuff you can get some competing statistics and so we have had people reach out to us and say okay I hear what you're saying but there are people and they are people of color and they have a voice and they are saying some things very differently Um, people like Ben Carson Shelby Shelby Steele and Candace Owens, and they're contradicting the things that we've been saying here and, and, the, th- and the things, the, the questions that we are answering. They have a different perspective. And so what do we do with that? Cedric, I'm going to let you tackle this one. What do we 
do with that, with these contradicting statistics and these contradicting points of view and voices? Yeah, I, th I think the first thing is to just acknowledge that um, as black people, people of color, but specifically black people, that we're not a monolithic block of people that right. all think the same. Right. <laughs> um, that, that's number one. <laughs> and, and what you just said and some of the voices, and there are others, um, show, show that, um, that they have a different perspective on the conversation that we're having right now. Um, I, I also think, too, that this isn't new. Um, if you go back in history, all the way from um, Reconstruction, going back to uh, slavery, there are books that talk about it, but I'm thinking right now about the racial uplift ideology of really being able to say that as a black person, um, that I need to do my best um, and those that are around me to be able to act a certain way, more so a lot of people quote it as acting white or mm -hmm. acting as um, a white person to be able to be accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and that acceptance of being able to uh, then have them remove their kind of racial, racist kind of mindset about me and people that look like me. And that ideology, personally, I believe doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I think that it, it goes a lot deeper. It deals with a lot of the things that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to be able to say this to um, all of those that um, <laughs> have come up against or are listening to some of those voices that you brought up. Um, just as I am navigating this world as a black man and I'm having to cope with different things, mm -hmm. the voices that you just brought up and those that have had competing um, interests in what our conversation is here today are navigating as well, and we need to also keep that in mind, mm -hmm. um, that it is hard for people of color in different ways, mm -hmm. and that people of color choose to cope yeah. in different ways and yeah. how they navigate systems. Mm -hmm. um, some don't navigate the same way that I do, right. um, but it's still navigation, right. it's still coping. And so I think sometimes when we have competing demands or thoughts, um, which um, some of the voices that you brought up I vehemently um, disagree with, um, the main reason being that um, some of those voices don't believe in structural or systemic racism. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of lend themselves more to thinking more about the choice instead of uh, taking into account history, perspective, mm -hmm. background, mm -hmm. um, what has uh, got us here. And so I, under, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do understand the role of trying to navigate and find acceptance mm -hmm. in a system. Yeah. And so for those that are doing your research, I am not saying don't listen to those types of voices. What I am saying is please understand that we all as black people are navigating this yep. system and we're navigating it differently. And I want you to take that into consideration yeah. as you listen to some of these voices. Well, yeah, so. I really appreciate so you saying that, Cedric. It's very yeah. helpful. I think mm -hmm. about we each have had to navigate I learned how to survive and how to even thrive a little as we can in this world. And just because, um, like you said, we're not a monolith, right? So just because I am biracial and, ooh, I have a white husband doesn't mean that I have never experienced what it's like to be judged because of my race or looked down upon or rejected. Um, just because there's a little bit of of uh, success or mm -hmm. thriving or surviving or any, it doesn't mean that it's not, that's, that systems have not been put in place to keep black and brown people down, right? Like you can't just take a little example here and there and say, see, 
none of right. none of that other stuff. That bad stuff isn't really real because yeah. look at these people. It's just it's not reality. I I completely so. agree, and I just wanted to uh, follow up on that. That a lot of people automatically think of. Like you just said, uh, Oprah Winfrey, yeah. and Barack Obama, and, mm. and all of that, and we're out of this, and there's no more, there are more, no more issues. Or couldn't you just be like mm -hmm. them? Mm -hmm. And again, this gets back to that racial uplift ideology. Mm -hmm. It is not having someone act a certain way to be accepted. Right. It is you accepting them and being able mm -hmm. to uproot some of these Amen. things that we've talked about here today. I, I wonder if, if part of it is. Um, we all, this is part of our mixed bag, we all tend to project our own stuff onto others. Uh, and this is part of the whole white legacy is we normalize the white perspective. And for these folks, and people have sent me a lot of these uh, writings and mm -hmm. videos and all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff. Thank you very much. You can stop now. I'm, <laughs> I'll never catch up to all this stuff. You got them. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, a lot of these individuals came out of really tough circumstances and either through exceptional talent and hard work and all the rest, they, they succeeded. And it's easy for any of us to say, well, if I could do it, so could you. Mm -hmm. And, and then, that, then they turn around and say, well, this, this whole thing of systemic stuff obviously isn't true. So they buy into the more individualistic, uh, right. more typically white narrative uh, and, and normalize their own experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah. I think so. But as we've said over and again, our liberation is tied to one another yes. and so. Yes. We need, we need to recognize that to be able to move forward. Amen. Um, we have gotten many questions, and like I said, we're going to, going to continue to address them. Uh, thank you guys for being here with us today to talk about this part of the, the puzzle. We will continue on. Uh, we want to transition now into um, talking about something that's happening here locally as a part of our church. Um, we have a school called SOMA, and it's a discipleship school, and they are beginning to take applications for the fall, and we just so happen to have Kevin here who oversees SOMA, Ooh. and so thank you, Kevin, for transitioning with me into right. talking about SOMA. No, um, what would you like to let us know? Tell us a little bit about SOMA. Yeah, so uh, SOMA is our School of Missional Apprenticeship. That's what the acronym stands for. And it's a nine-month intensive discipleship program that's uh, done in community. And when we talk about discipleship, we're not just talking about sort of head knowledge. We look at discipleship as a holistic spiritual formation. So SOMA focuses on mind formation in the form of like deep theological and biblical studies, uh, worldview transformation, etc. We also look at heart formation and mm -hmm. in the sense of we take students through a process of inner healing, um, as well as uh, becoming more secure in Christ and developing and cultivating more of an intimacy with Christ, as well as then focusing also on uh, shifting values towards kingdom uh, values and character formation, kingdom mm. values and character. And we also focus on what we're calling habit formation, which is uh, sort of a kingdom lifestyle of sacrifice and simplicity, as well as spiritual disciplines and practices and active missional participation and ministry in the church. And then finally, we focus on relational formation, and largely what that's about is peacemaking or reconciliation. Mm. Greg's message talked a lot today about reconciliation is the gospel, and uh, yet we, uh, how do we cash that out? And so in SOMA, we talk about reconciled relationships or peacemaking in our friendships, in our family relationships with each other, but also across every possible line in our society. 
and so we're trying to focus on racial reconciliation as well. SOMA is actually uh, located in the North Minneapolis neighborhood, the Jordan, Minneapolis, Jordan neighborhood of Minneapolis. Um, we're hosted by Pastor Terrell Walter and Marquita Walter, and the Jordan neighborhood is a very diverse um, social economically as well as culturally, but it's also a very poor neighborhood with a lot of crime. And so folks in SOMA are immersed into th that setting as well to kind of just be able to learn, uh, understand some of the dynamics in our society today as well as be, be a bridge for that. It just so. sounds like an amazing kingdom opportunity. Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if, if there are folks out there who hear you and think, hmm, I wonder if I would be a good candidate for that. Yeah. Who should be praying yeah. about considering SOMA and what kind of applicants yeah. are you looking for? Is there like a magic thing that you're like, oh yes. Right, no magic. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we nicknamed this school Seminary for Everybody and the seminary part is the Latin, seminary comes from the Latin word seed or seedbed when it's about growing little seedlings um, so that then you can transplant them out in the world for fruitfulness. So it's about becoming fruitful for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But the seminary for everybody part is, it really is for everybody. We've in, we're entering our third year, our first two years of SOMA. We had students from 18 up to 66 years old, mm -hmm. roughly half under 30, half over 30, roughly half male, half female. Wow. So really it is a seminary or a seedbed for kingdom growth for anybody. Um, and from anywhere, anywhere, right? Anywhere, we've literally had students from all over the country, coast to coast, yeah. and as well as Canada. That is amazing. So anybody could, um, married couples, single yeah. as well. So yeah. it, you might rule it out because it's a nine month intensive school, you'd have to come here to Minnesota, but we've actually had all of our students have rearranged their life for that nine month period mm. and to make it happen. So be praying about that. Well, and we also are living in this kind of unpredictable time in life. We don't really know what the fall is going to look like. COVID, I know I have kids yeah. in school, and we don't know if they're going to be able to go back to school. Yep. Um, so what is the plan for SOMA? Is it happening regardless, or yeah, are you waiting great. to hear? Great question. We did decide to move ahead with SOMA um, regardless of COVID. We're just going to keep it a small size so that SOMA can be a, a, its own social bubble. So we're looking at having six to eight students at, at the maximum this year. And then with our staff and, and teachers and faculty, we would be a social bubble unto ourselves. Okay. The students will live in community and then they'll be in class every day, but it will be a, a limited social bubble. So okay. we're doing it in spite of COVID. I love that, that's so. great. So if someone is interested, what should they do? Um, they can look on the website. I think there's gonna be information on the website. Uh, there's a, a video we have and a link on our website and also my email address would be on there. We'd love to hear from any of you out there who are interested. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Um, so look on our website for more info. That's great. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today. And we want to remind you that if you are interested in continuing this conversation um, and engaging a little bit more, we have a couple of ways that you can do that. Number one, we have the MuseCast on Tuesday afternoons where we discuss the sermon and we dive a little deeper and uh, address a few, a few questions and some practical applications of what we're hearing and learning. We also have gathering groups that are literally a, like a worldwide kingdom community. And those meet on Tuesday evenings and Wednesday mornings and we discussed the previous weekend sermon and again dive in a little deeper if you have any prayer needs at all we invite you to uh, 
join us in prayer. We have Zoom rooms set up so that you can get prayer from our prayer partners. Please, just don't carry whatever burden you have alone. Uh, let someone agree with you, and we have people that are ready to pray for you in our Zoom rooms. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you, and we know that in this mixed bag world, we are called to go in the direction of Jesus, our true north. And so we encourage you to continue to do that. Trust in him. Allow him to move in your life, work in your life, and redeem all that you have to offer to him. Thanks, guys. We love you so much.